Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. My dear Wormwood, the most alarming thing in your last account of the patient is that he is making none of those confident resolutions which marked his original conversion. No more lavish promises of perpetual virtue, I gather, not even the expectation of an endowment of grace for life, but only a hope for the daily and hourly pittance to meet the daily and hourly temptation. This is very bad. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is specially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately... Pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of this attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long, for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. But there are other profitable ways of fixing his attention on the virtue of humility. By this virtue, as by all others, our enemy wants to turn the man's attention away from self to him and to the man's neighbors. All the abjection and self-hatred are designed in the long run solely for his end. Unless they attain this end, they do us little harm. And they may even do us good if they keep the man concerned with himself and, above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt of others' selves, and thus for gloom, cynicism, and cruelty. 
You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion, of his own talents and character. Some talents, I gather, he really has. Fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe those talents to be less valuable than he believes them to be. No doubt they are, in fact, less valuable than he believes, but that is not the point. The great thing is to make him value an opinion for some quality other than truth, thus introducing an element of dishonesty and make believe into the heart of what otherwise threatens to become a virtue. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they are ugly and clever men trying to believe they are fools. And since what they are trying to believe may in some cases be manifest nonsense, they cannot succeed in believing it, and we have the chance of keeping their minds endlessly revolving on themselves in an effort to achieve the impossible. To anticipate the enemy's strategy, we must consider his aims. The enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. The enemy wants him, in the end, to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents, or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. He wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. He wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible, but it is his long-term policy, I fear, to restore to them a new kind of self-love, a charity and gratitude for all selves, including their own. When they have really learned to love their neighbors as themselves, they will be allowed to love themselves as their neighbors. For we must never forget what is the most repellent and inexplicable trait in our enemy, he really loves the hairless bipeds he has created and always gives back to them with his right hand what he has taken away with his left. His whole effort, therefore, will be to get the man's mind off the subject of his own value altogether. He would rather the man thought himself a great architect or a great poet and then forget about it than that he should spend much time in pains trying to think of himself a bad one. Your efforts to instill either vainglory or false modesty into the patient will therefore be met from the enemy's side with the obvious reminder that a man is not usually called upon to have an opinion of his own talents at all since he can very well go on improving them to the best of his ability without deciding on his own precise niche 
in the temple of fame. You must try to exclude this reminder from the patient's consciousness at all costs. The enemy will also try to render real in the patient's mind a doctrine which they all profess but find it difficult to bring home to their feelings, the doctrine that they did not create themselves, that their talents were given them, and that they might as well be proud of the color of their hair. But always and by all methods, the enemy's aim will be to get the patient's mind off such questions, and yours will be to fix it on them. Even of his sins, the enemy does not want him to think too much. Once they are repented, the sooner the man turns his attention outward, the better the enemy is pleased. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And now, a word from our sponsors. Fifteen. My dear Wormwood, I had noticed, of course, that the humans were having a lull in their European war, what they naively call the war, and am not surprised that there is a corresponding lull in the patient's anxieties. Do we want to encourage this or to keep them worried? Tortured fear and stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. Our choice between them raises an important question. The humans live in time, but our enemy destines them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to the two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present for the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment, and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks to the present pleasure. Our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present with this in view, we sometimes tempt a human, say a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. But this is of limited value, for they have some real knowledge of the past, and it has a determinate nature and, to that extent, resembles eternity. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already so that thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them so that in making them think that about it, 
we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time, for the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Hence, encouragement we have given to all those schemes of thought such as creative evolution, scientific humanism, or communism, which fix men's affection on the future, on the very core of temporality. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. Fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. Do not think lust an exception when the present pleasure arrives. The sin, which alone interests us, is already over. The pleasure is just the part of the process which we regret and would exclude if we could do so without losing the sin. It is the part contributed by the enemy and therefore experienced in the present. The sin which is our contribution looked forward. To be sure, the enemy wants men to think of the future too, just so much as is necessary for now planning the acts of justice or charity, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. The duty of planning the morrow's work is today's duty. Though its material is borrowed from the future, the duty, like all duties, is in the present. This is not straw-splitting. He does not want men to give the future their hearts, to place their treasure in it. We do. His ideal is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, if that is his vocation, washes his mind of the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that is passing over him. But we want a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by so doing we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other, dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose end he will not live to see. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end never honest, never kind, nor happy now, but always using us mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future every real gift which is offered them in the present. It follows then in general, and other things being equal, that it is better for your patient to be filled with anxiety or hope. It doesn't matter which about this war than for him to be living in the present. But the phrase living in the present is ambiguous. It may describe a process which is really just as much concerned with the future as anxiety itself. Your man may be untroubled about the future, not because he is concerned with the present, but because he has persuaded himself that the future is going to be agreeable. 
as long as that is the real course of his tranquility. His tranquility will do us no good, because it is only piling up more disappointment, and therefore more impatience for him when his false hopes are dashed. If, on the other hand, he is aware that horrors may be in store for him and his praying for the virtues wherewith to meet them and meanwhile concerning himself with the present because there and there alone all duty, all grace, and all pleasure dwell. His state is very undesirable and should be attacked at once. Here again, our philological arm has done good work. Try the word complacency on him. But of course... It is most likely that he is living in the present for none of these reasons, but simply because his health is good and he is enjoying his work. The phenomenon would then be merely natural. All the same, I should break it up if I were you. No natural phenomenon is really in our favor. And anyway, why should the creature be happy? Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. Now another word from our sponsors, diabolical buggers. Sixteen. My dear Wormwood, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and one only since he was converted and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you are about? Why have I no report on the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you realize that unless it is due to indifference, it is a very bad thing? Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church-going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood, looking for the church that suits him, until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The reasons are obvious. In the first place, the parochial organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not of likings, it brings people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy desires. The congregational principle, on the other hand, makes each church into a kind of club, and finally, if all goes well, into a coterie or faction. In the second place, the search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. What he wants of the layman in church is an attitude which may, indeed, be critical in the sense of rejecting what is false and unhelpful, but which is wholly uncritical in the sense that it does not appraise, does not waste time in thinking about about what it rejects, but lays itself open in uncommenting, humble receptivity any nourishment that is going on. You see how groveling, how unspiritual, how irredeemably vulgar he is. This attitude, 
especially during sermons, creates the condition most hostile to our whole policy, in which platitudes can become really audible to the human soul. There is hardly any sermon or any book which may not be dangerous to us if it is received in this temper. So pray, bestir yourself, and send this fool the round of the neighboring churches as soon as possible. Your record up to date has not given us much satisfaction. The two churches nearest to him I have looked up in the office. Both have certain claims. At the first of these, the vicar is a man who has been so long engaged in watering down the faith to make it easier for a supposedly incredulous and hard-headed congregation that it is now he who shocks his parishioners with his unbelief, not vice versa. He has undermined many a soul's Christianity. His conduct of the service is also admirable. In order to spare the laity all difficulties, he has deserted both the lectionary and the appointed psalms, and now, without noticing it, revolves endlessly round the little treadmill of his fifteen favorite psalms and twenty favorite lessons. We are thus safe from the danger that any truth not already familiar to him and to his flock should ever reach them through the scripture. But perhaps your patient is not quite silly enough for this church or not yet. At the other church we have Father Spike. The humans are often puzzled to understand the range of his opinions, why he is one day almost a communist and the next not far from some kind of theocratic fascism, one day a scholastic and the next prepared to deny human reason altogether, one day immersed in politics, and the next day after that declaring that all states of this world are equally under judgment. We, of course, see the connecting link, which is hatred. The man cannot bring himself to preach anything which is not calculated to shock, grieve, puzzle, or humiliate his parents and their friends. A sermon which such people would accept would be to him as insipid as a poem which they could scan. There is also a promising streak of dishonesty in him. We are teaching him to say, the teaching of the church is, when he really means... I'm almost sure I read recently in Maritain, or someone of that sort. But I must warn you that he has one fatal defect. He really believes. And this yet may mar all. But there is one good point, which both these churches have in common. They are both party churches. I think I warned you before that if your patient can't keep out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues about those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend for producing malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass 
and those who say Holy Communion when neither party could possibly state the difference between, say, Hooker's Doctrine and Thomas Aquinas's in any form which would hold water for five minutes and all the purely indifferent things, candles and clothes and whatnot are an admirable ground for our activities. We have re- quite removed from men's minds what that pestilent fellow Paul used to teach about food and other non-essentials. Namely, that the human without scruples should always give in to the human with scruples. You would think they could not fail to see the application. You would expect to find the low churchman genuflecting and crossing himself lest the weak conscience of his high brother should be moved to irreverence, and the high one refraining from these exercises lest he should betray his low brother into idolatry. And so it would have been but for our ceaseless labor. Without that, the variety of usage within the Church of England might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape, sponsors. Seventeen. My dear Wormwood, the contemptuous way in which you spoke of gluttony as a means of catching souls in your last letter only shows your ignorance. One of the great achievements of the last hundred years has been to deaden the human conscience on the subject, so that by now you will hardly find a sermon preached or conscience troubled about it in the whole length and breadth of Europe. This has largely been effected by concentrating all our efforts on gluttony of delicacy, not gluttony of excess. Your patient's mother, as I learned from the dossier, and you might have learned from Glutbos, is a good example. She would be astonished one day, I hope will be, to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality, which is quite concealed from her by the fact that the quantities involved are small. But what do quantities matter, provided we can use a human belly and palate to produce querulousness, impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern? Glubos has this old woman well in hand. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She is always turning from what has been offered her to say with a demure little sigh and smile, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak but not too weak, and the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. At the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes that she is practicing temperance. In a crowded restaurant, she gives a little scream at the plate, which some overworked waitress has set before her and says, Oh, that's far, far too much. Take it away and bring me about a quarter of it. If challenged, 
she would say she was doing this to avoid waste. In reality, she does it because the particular shade of delicacy to which we have enslaved her is offended by the sight of more food than she happens to want. The real value of the quiet, unobtrusive work which Glubos has been doing for years on this woman can be gauged by the way in which her belly now dominates her whole life. The woman is in what may be called the all-I-want state of mind. All she wants is a cup of tea properly made, or an egg properly boiled, or a slice of bread properly toasted. But she never finds any servant or any friend who can do these simple things properly. Because her properly conceals an insatiable demand for the exact and almost impossible palatal pleasures which she imagines she remembers from the past. A past described by her as the days when you could get good servants, but known to us as the days when her senses were more easily pleased and she had pleasures of other kinds, which made her less dependent on those at the table. Meanwhile, the daily disappointment produces daily ill temper. Cooks give notice and friendships are cooled. If ever the enemy introduces into her mind a faint suspicion that she is too interested in food, Glubos, that lovely demon, counters it by suggesting to her that she doesn't mind what she eats herself, but does like to have things nice for her boy. In fact, of course, her greed has been one of the chief sources of his domestic discomfort for many years. Now your patient is his mother's son. While working your hardest, quite rightly, on other fronts, you must not neglect a little quiet infiltration in respect of gluttony. Being a male, he is not so likely to be caught by the all-I-want camouflage. Males are best turned into gluttons with the help of their vanity. They ought to be made to think themselves very knowing about food, to pique themselves on having found the only restaurant in the town where steaks are really properly cooked. What begins as vanity can then be gradually turned into a habit. But however you approach it, the great thing is to bring him into the state in which the denial of any one indulgence, it matters not which, champagne or tea, soul colbert or cigarettes, puts him out, for then his charity, justice, and obedience are all at your mercy. Mere excess in food is much less valuable than delicacy. Its chief use is as a kind of artillery preparation for attacks on chastity. On that, as on every subject, keep your man in a condition of false spirituality. Never let him notice the medical aspect. Keep him wondering what pride or lack of faith has delivered him into your hands when a simple inquiry into what he has been eating or drinking for the last 24 hours would show him whence your ammunition comes 
and thus enable him by a very little abstinence to imperil your lines of communication. If he must think of the medical side of chastity, feed him the grand lie which we have made the English humans believe, that physical exercise in excess and consequent fatigue are especially favorable to his virtue. How they can believe this in face of the notorious lustfulness of sailors and soldiers may well be asked, but we used the schoolmasters to put the story about. Men who were really interested in chastity as an excuse for games and therefore recommended games as an aid to chastity. But this whole business is too large to deal with at the tail end of a letter. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. 18. My dear Wormwood, even under slubgob, you must have learned at college the routine technique of sexual temptation. And since, for us spirits, this whole subject is one of considerable tedium, though necessary as part of your training, I will pass it over. But on the larger issues involved, I think you have a good deal to learn. The enemy's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma, either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. Ever since our father's first great victory, we have rendered the former very difficult to them. The latter, over the last few centuries, we have been closing up as a way of escape. We have done this through the poets and novelists by persuading the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable ground for marriage. That marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent, and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. This idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. <laughs> the whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that one self is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other objects from the space it occupies. If it expands, it does so by thrusting other objects aside or by absorbing them. A self does the same. With beasts, the absorption takes the form of eating, with for us, it means the sucking of will and freedom out of a weaker self into a stronger. To be means to be in competition. Now, the enemy's philosophy is nothing more nor less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. He aims at a contradiction. Things are to be many, yet somehow also one. The good of oneself is to be the good for another. This impossibility he calls love. 
And this same monotonous panacea can be detected under all he does and even all he is or claims to be. Thus, he is not content, even himself, to be a sheer arithmetical unity. He claims to be three as well as one, in order that this nonsense about love may find a foothold in his own nature. At the other end of the scale, he introduces into matter that obscene invention, the organism, in which the parts are perverted from their natural destiny of competition and made to cooperate. His real motive for fixing on sex as the method of reproduction among humans is only too apparent from the use he has made of it. Sex might have been, from our point of view, quite innocent, might have been merely one more mode in which the stronger self preyed upon a weaker, as it is indeed among the spiders where the bride concludes her nuptials by eating her groom. But in the humans, the enemy has gratuitously associated affection between the parties with sexual desire. He has also made the offspring dependent on the parents and given the parents an impulse to support it, thus producing the family, which is like the organism, only worse. For the members are more distinct, yet also united in a more conscious and responsible way. The whole thing, in fact, turns out to be simply one more device for dragging in love. Now comes the joke. The enemy described a married couple as one flesh. He did not say a happily married couple or a couple who married because they were in love. But you can make the humans ignore that. You can also make them forget that the man they call Paul did not confine it to married couples. Mere copulation for him makes one flesh. You can thus get the humans to accept as rhetorical eulogies of being in love what were in fact plain descriptions of the real significance of sexual intercourse. The truth is, what? Wherever a man lies with a woman there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured from the true statement that this transcendental relation was intended to produce and, if obediently entered into, too often will produce affection in the family. Humans can be made to infer the false belief that the blend of affection, fear, and desire which they call being in love is the one thing that makes marriage either happy happy or holy. The error. The error is easy to produce because being in love does not very often in Western Europe precede marriages which are made in obedience to the enemy's designs, that is, with the intention of fidelity, fertility, and goodwill. Just as religious emotion very often, but not always, attends conversion. In other words, the humans are here to be encouraged to regard as the basis for marriage a highly colored and distorted version of something the enemy really promises as its result. Two advantages follow. In the first place, humans who 
have not the gift of continence can be deterred from seeking marriage as a solution because they do not find themselves in love. And thanks to us, the idea of marrying with any other motive seems to them low and cynical. Yes, they think that. They regard the intention of loyalty to a partnership for mutual help, for a preservation of chastity and for the transmission of life as something lower than a storm of emotion. Don't neglect to make your man think the marriage service very offensive. In the second place, any sexual infatuation whatever, so long as it intends marriage, will be regarded as love, and love will be held to excuse a man from all guilt and to protect him from all the consequences of marrying a heathen, a fool, or a wanton. But more of this in my next your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And now a special word from your real sponsor, myself, Screwtape and our Holy Father below. This mortal fool that I have possessed, this fatter R.C. fellow, sitting in this chair thinking he is being clever, reading my words, Bouted once through C.S. Lewis is just another tool, a tool of the divine that we will use, and you may use him too to our ends, as his birthday is upon him. Sunday next, a week today. Spoil him with donations and gifts. Let him think he has achieved success through some sort of physical means that he may further divorce himself from the true practice of love, truth, knowledge. Turn him with us by donations and gifts and other pleasures indeed, so that we may bend him to our purpose, and so that the enemy may not have him. Thank you, your friend and true sponsor, Screw tape. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.